it's maybe I just need to whisper the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> you have such a deep voice. I don't think he's he's used to that, so maybe that was it. Because my friend also doesn't have a doesn't have a deep voice. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe I'll that's bring it. over one of those little voice changer things, mm. and make it make it sound electronic, <laughs> and maybe that'll that'll help. Robert, did you say that there's something wrong with the recording? Well, or? I had the wrong settings, so I'm really glad we basically talked about nothing up until now. <laughs> so I, I restarted it. Okay. Nice. Yeah. And cool. I, I could have made it work, but this is better. Yeah, no, so no reason to do that. We just started as of 40 seconds ago. So everything we've talked about for the last 21 minutes has not happened. Oh, good. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's for the best. It is for the best. <laughs> <laughs> it, was like, it was like a warm-up. We, we just That's got our right. third cat. Well, not our second cat, but third pet this weekend. This last weekend. And we've got them all so far at Operation Kindness. And I, I want to give those guys a shout out, by the way. If, if anybody's listening to the podcast and they want to adopt an animal, Operation Kindness in Dallas is just like a really awesome place. Cats and dogs. And yeah, highly recommend. Nice. Yeah, well, we, we don't have sponsors, so any recommendation is uh, that's from the heart. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no, there's no ulterior paid. motive here. Yeah. That's a, that guy on Prices, right? He, he would always end by, Reminding people to spay and neuter their pets. That's so, right. Yeah. Bob Barker yeah. is that Bob right? Bob Barker. That's right. Is that him? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I just remember him from Happy Gilmore. <laughs> mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been a, it's been a while since we uh, we did this recording, and I think we we looked it up and we ended kind of on one on ones. Yeah. And yeah. So we we're, had we're a whole back. episode on one on ones, and so we're just still trying to chug through chapter two which is one, one, maybe two more episodes, I think. So today we're at decision-making and first principles, which we can kind of combine together. And then dealing with difficult people, if we can get to it, compensation, and then we can pretty much wrap it up. So we'll see. We'll see where we get today, but definitely on decision-making and first principles are are the place to start, I think. Yeah. I'm I'm excited. I don't have my book in front of me, so I don't have source material, but those two things... I have spent a lot of time researching, thinking about, and I I certainly have opinions, and I'm curious about y'all's. Yeah, let's do it. So we'll start with decision-making. So let me just tee up what the book says, Charles, and then let's go right into your reaction, and you can meander wherever you want. The point of this is not to do a book report, so I love that you said that. Okay, so in the book, if you're reading along with us, it's the throne behind the round table, which I think is a really interesting analogy because... Bill Campbell would say the manager's job is to run a decision-making process, right? So you're enabling, ensuring, facilitating all perspectives get heard and considered. And you really want the team making the decision and you're sort of the final, yeah, that makes sense. But if necessary, you have to break ties and actually make the decision. So the decision accountability is yours as the leader. The responsibility of the decision-making process should should the execution of it should be with the team as well to making sure that those perspectives get heard and considered, but then ultimately it kind of comes back up to you. So there's a, some responsibility accountability here, I think, which is a little bit nuanced, but, and and I fully agree with, right? And so that kind of mold, molds or asks the leader to be more in a facilitator enabler role and trust the team more, gives some more autonomy. So maybe we'll start there. Yeah, I, when you're starting off talking about decision-making process, the word that jumped to mind was collective, like it's a collective decision-making process, not a individual, this is how I 
a leader or executive or manager make a decision. And so I, I think that I think and and that ties back into the you know, I think one of the one of the things that we're taught you know, at our company is that highly mature or as you mature as a leader, more of your more of your responsibility is in enabling others, facilitating f- facilitating period. And that that's what came to mind. It's like, hey, as a leader of a team, you have to facilitate and enable this collective group decision making process and empower people on your team to help make good decisions. And yeah, maybe sometimes break ties. And and that's that's where I think the challenge becomes, and this to the second part, I'm just going to jump around here, around first principles. That's really hard to do. Like thinking in, in terms of first principles is, uh, it, it seems like it's a rare thing. It's something that can be trained and taught and put into practice, I think. But when you said those two things, it's, ah, how do you teach people to think in terms of first principles when making decisions? And uh, I, I think that's probably the, well, I wonder if that's what Bill spent a lot of his time doing, where it's like coaching the team, coaching individuals on how to individually make better decisions so that way collectively the group makes the best decisions possible. I don't know. I'll stop there. I don't know if that made any sense or not, but that's what that's what came to mind. Yeah, it makes sense. And you're pretty aligned with the book, right? So and I did mention the round table. If you're listening, we're talking about King Arthur and the round table. So he would have sort of this think about this vision of even though King Arthur was king, there was no head of the table. It was round. Everyone was treated more equally, if that makes sense. And so the the analogy that Bill was using here is if you have the right conversation, if you're doing the right things as a leader, if you're facilitating properly, then eight out of 10 times, people will reach the best conclusion on their own, which is ideal, right? And again, it helps you sort of not exercise your role power, which should be used very sparingly. So the team is autonomous, they're gelling, they're wrestling with tough pro- problems. Most of the time, this is sure my experience too, the team knows what to do. <laughs> and for you to reach the same conclusion, if there's a level of needing to be brought up to speed and those kind of things. And so the facilitation makes a lot more sense. And then he'll say the other two times you need to make the hard decision and expect that everyone will rally around it. There isn't a head of the table, but there is a throne behind it. And I think leaders shy away from that kind of idea where you have that authority, but also a tremendous amount of responsibility that comes with it to do right by your team. And I think people either, they focus too much on the quote-unquote throne, right? On the role power that it either goes skews one way or another, which is they relish in it and want more power and like the fact that they're in charge, right? That they're the boss. Or they kind of avoid it completely and avoid making decisions and avoid, uh, avoid upsetting the apple cart. And either way, you're missing the mark, right? You either you have a responsibility to the well-being of your team and not to lord over them as a as a, a sort of a tyrant, but then not fully embracing the responsibility that the organization has given you and that they're paying you for and you're happily cashing the paychecks for is dysfunction where you are there's this void now and you're kind of leaving it up to the team to figure out, but they don't have mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the power to to 
to move forward with the decision. So there's a middle ground there. Yeah. And the and that's where first principles come in. And, and I've never put these two things together until you started giving your explanation, Charles, and they're they're right next to each other in the book. But the first principles is the is the leader's mechanism to go and socialize and be vulnerable and transparent about what things are important for the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. Right? Like right now in our firm, Finn well-being, right? Making sure that people are taken care of and that they're led by good managers and that they're working on interesting work and all of those things. Like we're really hyper-focused right now. Like our top priority is the well-being of our people because we're trying to fight attrition and the market's kind of crazy right now and there's a lot of uncertainty. So we might make decisions that from the from an external perspective look silly. Right? Why would we close down work and miss out on revenue? Why would we put this person in this role? And our guiding principle here, and I like the idea of guiding principles versus first principles, because I, I don't think in every situation you need to boil it down to physics, right? But our guiding principle right now is fin well-being. And so if we go into the conversation being transparent about that, then the decisions make sense and you don't have to nitpick them. Or you can say, no, I don't think that should be our guiding principle. I think profitability and revenue and growth should be where we focus. And then you have a merit-based discussion on those guiding principles before you get into the decisions. And I think too often we do not separate those things. And leaders, and I'm, I'll be the first to raise my hand, I'm, I'm terrible at trying to get to the guiding principles first. I'm just more intuitive on going and trying to make decisions and move things forward. And I think I'm, I'm missing half the equation, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that I, I'm with you. I'm guilty of this 99% of the time, too. It's just I, I don't think about what is the guiding principle here that should inform decision-making. Yeah, I, as you were talking about, about the leaders shying away from exercising the throne that they have behind the roundtable, it reminded me of something that I read, I think, when the pandemic first started, so or mid-2020 or something like that. And uh, do y'all know Andreessen Horowitz? The What are they? They're a private equity firm? Yeah, private equity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So I read an article by Ben Horowitz. It's about peacetime and wartime CEOs. Yeah, yeah. And I read that. I was like, oh, my gosh. It's like as as a leader, we have to know when we need to step into either role. You, You can't do both at the same time. Peacetime very much a facilitate, enable, empower others. Wartime, though, man, you got to be decisive, authoritative, and make tough calls. And people, your people expect that of you in those situations. And discerning when you need to shift, I think, is the hardest part. Okay, is now wartime or not? If you get it wrong, it has, it has significant implications either way. And uh, that's kind of the, I think that's the practice. Okay, do do I need to step in? It's kind of like with kids. It's okay, my my kids are in conflict with each other, and I see it escalating a little bit. But do I need to intervene or not? Can I coach them through this, or do I need to separate them so that way this doesn't come to physical blows? Which it it they don't. They're great kids. They don't they don't often go for blood. <laughs> but that that's interesting. I, I don't even I don't know if I'm I don't know what a practice would look like to try to sense. Okay, 
are we shifting into a wartime scenario or a peacetime one? I don't even know if that's the right analogy. Yeah. Igor, I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. It, it reminds me of a book that I read recently on like tribes and that some native tribes had sort of bimodal leadership. And in peacetime, there is a certain leadership structure and certain humans that fill that structure. And then the wartime, there was a wartime leader. And so for them, they made pretty stark sort of at the human filling the role level distinction between peacetime and wartime. And and maybe that even makes sense. I, I think it would take a pretty incredible individual who could at the same time embody like wartime characteristics at a high level and peacetime characteristics at, at a high level. Um, there's probably plenty of leaders that could do decent, you know, at mm-hmm. both. Yeah. But if you're looking for like exceptional leadership, I think it would be pretty difficult for one person to to play both. To embody roles, both. You know. Yeah. Because a lot of this, I think, has to do with how you're wired, right? So it's like the peacetime CEO knows that a proper protocol leads to winning. The peacetime CEO always has a contingency plan. The peacetime CT- CEO spends time defining the culture they know what to do with the big advantage, right? Like those are from the article. Wartime CEO violates protocol to win, right? Let's the war define the culture, right? Is paranoid. And in mo- most times, most leaders don't have to exhibit wartime. And that's why... Well, most of the time you don't. Yeah, That was the big shift, right? I guess that was being purported by, by Ben, but by others as well. It was, hey, COVID is wartime. And are you ready to flex? Yeah. I think anytime you're in a crisis, and, and the interesting thing is there are macro crises, crises, but even the pandemic actually helped some industries. And then there are organizational crises, which are sometimes independent from, affected by, but, but mostly are, are dealt with maybe internally. So I think it's important to, to recognize what state that your organization is in and at a minimum exhibit the behaviors that make the most sense for that situation, which is hard to do. That's not easy. Yeah, and, and I think just going back to what what you were saying about kind of the, the nuance of responsible versus accountable for decision-making, I think what we're talking about here is that as a, as a leader, one of the things that we are responsible for is making clear what are the relevant roles on the team, including our own, and what are the expectations of those roles. And because that, I, I was, when I read that peacetime wartime CEO, it reminded me of something that I remember learning about ancient Rome and the, the role of the dictator. The dictator, when we hear that word now, it has this very negative connotation. But in ancient Rome, it was a specific role that was defined, voted on by the Senate for, and that and it had it served a very specific purpose when there was a crisis, and so there was a term to the role, and there were limits to people's power, and and yet they, they saw the value of having that role defined and be filled at all times, and and somewhere along the way, probably because many many humans when they when they taste that power, it kind of amplifies maybe their desire for more power. Maybe they they never let it go, and uh, you know I'm I'm pretty sure Julius Caesar was like the last dictator upon which that role got abolished. 
because of his abuse of that that role, maybe. But there's something to that, right? Just making it clear, look, we've got these roles. Let's separate the person from the role. And let's know when we need to embody and energize these roles and when not to. And let's make that clear as part of not, not only peacetime or time, but as it relates to decision making. Let's, let's, let's try to define what are the important perspectives to have on making a decision and who who fills those roles. There's just, there's a lot of wisdom that that I've seen us try to, to strive for in terms of separating the role from the role filler. This notion that we fill multiple roles simultaneously and we express those roles and energize those roles at different points in time. Like all of that, prior to thinking about that, like you said, Robert, was all just intuition. It's like, we, we, we all know we wear different hats. I think an effective leader is able to articulate what those hats are, design them in a way where they can be, I don't know if delegate is the right word, to others on the team so that they, they can begin to learn what they need to in order to be a leader themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And that comes back to decisions leaders make based on guiding principles or opinions or insights about what the current state of the organization or market or whatever is. Yeah. I would also argue sometimes you certainly know, like with COVID, that you're in more of a crisis slash wartime, whatever you want to call it mode. But there's also other mini crises that come up and down that should cause a change in behavior and maybe don't. And so I think it's probably a little more nuanced than just the big obvious ones. And that, I think that boils down to the what data are you going to look to? Do you have access to to be able to sense whether you need to shift or what to prioritize when making a, making a decision. Do you think do you think first principles, guiding principles, are those heuristics in your mind to help make decisions quickly? Heuristics, or, or the, maybe more like almost priorities, yeah, or truths, right? That we all agree are have a shared context that are true that are independent of a problem, right? Like fin well being versus growth. Sometimes those things are aligned. When yeah. you have to make a decision that prioritizes one or the other, better to be clear about what, what those priorities are. So I'm, this is maybe where we, I don't know if we're deviating from the book necessarily, but it is probably not expanding, but that there is sort of more layers, I think, to not just for first principles like you might think of as these like core immutable truths, right? But it's more you know, a layer up from that, which is the how, how you can make sense of what you think the future will hold and and moving in that direction. And that's how the book defines first principles. No, it, the right? first principles are like the what what it'll say is the immutable truths upon which everyone can agree, right? And you generally can't argue principles, and so I, I think that's probably there are times where that's hyper valuable, but there are other times where picking it up a layer or two is, is beneficial as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, I think the example that most people, if, if anybody Googles first principles, they'll probably come upon the Elon Musk, Tesla example of first principles thinking. I think he's famous for putting first principles on the map, at least in terms of the general public around, hey, I, I want to I get into space and I can buy used Russian rockets off the market at X price, 
But let me apply first principles thinking to this. What are rockets made of? Well, they're made up of these composite materials. So there's fuel and there's, I don't know, some sort of alloy that's used and all of this other stuff. Well, I can go buy those things off of the commodities market for this price. And, and then I just have to come up with a way to manufacture the rocket for less than this price. And I've got a viable business model for SpaceX, for example. Maybe he was talking about Tesla batteries. I, I can't remember which one, but that's, I think that's probably more of a... Engineering first principles business. Engineering, yeah. First principles, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think in the book they use yeah. integrity as like a first principle where mm-hmm. we had already sort of agreed to terms of a deal. And even though there was this late like third party that came in and, and disrupted it, we decided to go with what we originally agreed on because... I see, yeah. No, but yeah. like integrity as a way to enhance partnership, like those kind of yeah. things. That that makes more sense then, the distinction here around what are the priorities, like what are our values, even maybe values is a good way to think about first principles in the context of the book. Say hey, we value integrity. It's yeah, we value thin well-being. Yeah. We value, value profitability. And okay, those should guide our decisions. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And we just got out of a, Igor and I were in a offsite two weeks ago. And we were talking about objectives to to feed into our OKRs, right? And there's all the typical ones that you would sort of expect, but we had a few aspirational ones. And one of them was like, we'll create joyfulness for ourselves and others. Like it's sort of have fun. We have not had any fun over the last two years. <laughs> it's been ad hoc and afterthought and all of those yeah. things. But what if one of our guiding principles, and I hesitate to call that, maybe, I don't know, like maybe that is... A first principle. Either way, I think it applies because we're talking about decision making here, where when we go and you know do a client engagement or we're setting up a project or whatever, it's like how can we accomplish multiple objectives, push forward multiple objectives in one effort as part of one effort? And having someone that has a role or is looking into like how do we weave fun into the things that we do. That it's not impossible, but it doesn't happen by default. It's not like we're all going to happy hour together. Some of this is project execution stuff, but you can add fun-related elements, joyfulness-related elements to these activities with a little bit of intentionality. And so it's it's kind of, yeah. I think, those things that shape and, and mold the success of a team or organization over time, which would be cool to be arbiter of fun as a role. I was trying to think that... I used to have a a role on one of my accounts, the ambassador of fun. I think that's what we ambassador, used to call it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. 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 Maybe that was it. I don't know. If, Igor, do you remember when we were at the yeah. same account? If we do, we yeah, call that the was ambassador a, that was ethos. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Kendra was the ambassador of fun. I love it. That produced yep. the the awards. Didn't we have fun awards that you we, you gave out to we, people? We did. We did. We did the ethies. Yeah. That's Which I, I love dragging an old horse through the mud. That's probably not even a saying. But <laughs> this Thursday evening, we are having the NGs. Oh, that's awesome. For, there you go. For the Engage team. Yeah. And so it's a sort of extravaganza and the clients invited this time. So when we had the Ethies, it was just it was just fins, but this one's all inclusive. There you go. That's gonna be fun. So that yeah, is gonna, gonna be, be fun. Blast. Yeah. Awesome. Well, anything else? So going back to decision-making, Charles, I know you've looked a lot into individual decision-making 
and decision journals and, and things like that. Do you want to sort of close out the episode with maybe some thoughts or guidance on what you can do as a leader to enhance your decision-making skills over time to embrace the fact that you have to make these decisions and maybe to find a way to see yourself getting better so you have more confidence in in making decisions as you grow your career? Well, you, you, you said it, and I, we can expand we can expand upon it. I think making viewing leaders have to make have to view making decisions as a practice. And we're going to make gosh, I don't know, thousands of decisions in our lifetime related to our work, not related to our work. We are decision-making beings and when you view it as a practice that you can get better at over time, I I think it 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 kind of points to okay, well how can we how can we improve? And you you said the answer, it is decision journaling. And that could be as simple as, hey, whenever you're confronted with a difficult decision to make or an interesting decision to make or a pivotal decision to make, something that hinges, the project hinges on the decision or something like that, just take the moment to jot down certain aspects of the current situation. It could be the information that you have, but it could also be what's your what is your current mental and emotional state? Are you tired? Did you get a good night's sleep last night? Is it right making a decision right before lunchtime when you're hungry? Because so many factors influence our ability to make effective decisions. We know that. We're, and, and we're flawed. And so if it's not measured, you can't improve it. I think that there's some sort of saying like that. And so measuring decisions is just documenting what was your thought process and what was the current context in which you made that decision? And then look back on that over time and see if you identify any trends that that you can you can point to that if you if you addressed could result in better better decision making. Robert, I think you you you've looked into this with me at at certain points and there's there's such a thing as making a good decision that led to a poor outcome. Because we all have incomplete yeah. information. Yeah. So do you want to say more on that? And because I, I think that would be valuable too. It's just to separate decision making from the outcome of the decision itself. Which is that, re- really, really difficult. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So so the, the most dangerous situation is when you engage in a poor decision making process. You don't have all the data you needed. You didn't take it seriously enough. You didn't really think it through. Your biases were front and center whatever. And the outcome actually works out because most things yeah. in life like tend to work out, right? You got lucky. Yeah, you case. got lucky. <laughs> you rolled a hard six, right? And now you think that, oh, I can go write a book on this, right? And maybe all that, that reinforces, I would say, a little bit of pride and arrogance, but also you you're getting feedback in this feedback loop that encourages things that you've done in the past because you've seen some success, but they weren't healthy, right? On the other side, you can make the, the perfect decision for this point in time, but because we're human and we can't tell the future, you can have a negative outcome. And it's hard to have the confidence to stick with the process or moving forward with future decisions when you had that negative outcome, even though the decision making was was great. And so part of the decision journaling in Farnham Street has a really great one, which we'll put in the show notes, helps you at least create that feedback loop where you can get 
some information, be a little bit introspective about decisions that were made, and that will help triangulate in the future. But there is some art and science here. And so there will always be an uncertainty aspect of the decisions you're making. But I think you'll, you'll sort of be rewarded tenfold in value based on every minute you spend journaling or preparing or, or thinking through these key decisions to make. So that, I guess, is the what practical, <laughs> the practical tip at the end of the episode. If you want to get better at decision-making, certainly decision journaling, thinking about the situation in context, framing the problem, what are the variables in play? How are you feeling? What's the date, right? But also, I, I would maybe if we combine what I'm looking at on Farnham Street, which is wonderful, with what we talked about before, feeling the the responsibility of the role that you're playing when you make this decision. What is your responsibility here? What's your lane, right? That you're that you need to stay in, but also the the guiding principles that you're using to make that decision. Because if you're prioritizing something that makes sense today and the priorities change later, which is probably why the book didn't recommend that and went to first principles, you can know that that was part of the the equation. So if you kind of pepper in some of the stuff we talked about and then you you sort of document, look internally around how you're feeling and and then review it at a later date when you have the the benefit of perfect hindsight, right? The, the, the other thing that I, I really like too about Farnham Street is they got me to think about the trying to anticipate the the range of possible outcomes of your decision. We often assume you make a decision, it's kind of black or white, binary, either this or that will happen. But what I remember digging into their decision journaling stuff is no, that's that's rarely ever the case, right? Making a decision can produce a a range of outcomes, all with different probabilities. And enforcing yourself to try to think about what what are the range of outcomes of this decision that I'm about to make, it can help us make better decisions. It makes us think more deeply about the maybe the complexity of the situation. Yeah. Yes, reminds yes. me of there's a saying that uh, decision making is poker, not chess. Mm. In in that there's an element of luck and probability. In chess, there is no luck or probability. There's probability, but it's chess is a finite game, right? Because there's for every move, there's a there's the perfect counter move. Yeah, yeah. But in poker, you know, the shuffling of the cards creates an unknown, and so you could make the sort of best decision given all inputs. But at the end of the day, a bad a bad river is gonna. Yeah, and that that's the perfect example because sometimes you have an eighty percent probability of winning. You play it perfectly. And the cards just don't fall your way. Yep. All right, y'all. Cool, guys. I think we're we're pretty much done with the chapter. There's a couple more sections, but I think some of those creep up later. Yeah. And we we talked about the things that Bill Campbell did really well, maybe better than anyone else, right? And he, it was sort of an ongoing practice. So we talked about operational excellence putting people first, treating people really well, being decisive, one-on-ones, developing your team, communicating well, getting the most out of your team. I think I think that's a good place to wrap up this chapter and then we'll hit chapter 3, building trust, which should be really exciting next time we talk. Can't yeah. wait, guys. I'm looking forward to it. Well, it was great chatting with you. I know it's been a little while, so thanks for making the time today. Yeah, thanks, thanks everyone. Absolutely. All right, bye. 
see you.